Hello from London, everyone. And a very warm welcome to you all to this LSE online public event, wherever you are around the globe. I am Sandra Javcelovic, Professor of Social Psychology here at the Department of Psychological and Behavioral Sciences at the school. And it is my great pleasure to be chairing this panel today on reconciliation processes in post-conflict societies, Colombia and beyond. Uh, before I introduce our speakers, just let me say a few words about this event. This event marks the beginning of a, seri a series of knowledge exchange activities that seek to build dialogue about the findings and experiences of our international and interinstitutional research partnership on pathways to forgiveness and reconciliation in Colombia, a collaboration between the LSE, Foundation Santa Fe de Bogotá, and Foundation for Reconciliation, a third sector organization in Colombia, which is jointly funded by Research Council UK, the Newton Fund, and Mincensis Colombia. We have been studying the impact of reconciliation on the psychological and social well-being of communities most affected by the political conflict in Colombia. And a key lesson we have learned from this work relates to how positive experiences of reconciliation are for mental health, for youth, and for community development. And yet, however positive its impact, reconciliation is a hard to achieve and challenging to maintain psychological, social, and political process. So to address these challenges and kick off the academic year, I have with me today an exceptional panel of distinguished speakers whose research, activism, and political leadership can help us better understand and address the problem of reconciliation in post-conflict societies and beyond. Professor Lord Alderdice read medicine at Queen's University Belfast before qualifying as a member of the Royal College of Psychiatrists. He had a significant role in, in the negotiation of the Good Friday Agreement and was appointed the first speaker of the Northern Ireland Assembly in 1998. He served there until 2004, when he was appointed by the British and Irish governments as one of four international commissioners overseeing security normalization in the Isle of Ireland. He retired from clinical practice in 2010, but continues his academic interests as senior research fellow and director of the Center for the Resolution of Intractable Conflict based at Harris Manchester College at the University of Oxford. His work on democ democracy and peace building has been recognized with many fellowships, honorary degrees and prizes, and in 2015 with Liberal International's highest honor, the Prize for Freedom. Frederico Rodriguez, uh, our second uh, speaker from Colombia, is the president of Foundation for Reconciliation uh, in Mexico, which is a third sector organization which runs the program Schools for Forgiveness and Reconciliation, first established in Colombia. He's also president of Centro Cultural Loyola de Monterrey, a nonprofit organization that fosters spiritual development and culture. He has worked very broadly on the promotion of education for children as young citizens, entrepreneurship, and the rule of law. 
Before becoming a leader in the tech sector in Latin America, Federico held many positions in government and industry, including the Mexican Central Bank, the Office of Economic Advisors, to the president of Mexico and Citibank, Mexico. He holds a BA in economics from ITAM and an MA in economics from the University of Rochester, New York, and the University of Western Ontario, Canada. Nicola Lacey, our very own Nikki Lacey, is a school professor of law, gender, and social policy. Between 1998 and 2010, she held a chair in criminal law and legal theory at LSE, and then went on to spend three years at the University of Oxford as senior research fellow at All Souls College and professor of criminal law and legal theory. In 2013, to our great fortune, she came back to the school. Uh, she holds many visiting appointments, including at Hard Law School, and is an honorary fellow of uh, New York, uh, New, New College, Oxford, and University College, Oxford. A fellow of the British Academy, a member of the Board of Trustees of the British Museum. And in 2011, she was awarded the Hans Sigrid Prize by the University of Bern for outstanding scholarship on the function of the rule of law in late modern societies. In 2017, she was awarded a CBE for services to law, justice, and gender politics. Finally, Dr. Fabio Idrobo is a research associate at the Population Health Division of Fundación Santa Fe de Bogotá and an adjunct faculty member in the Department of Psychological Sciences at Boston University and at the School of Medicine of the University of Los Andes. He returned to his native Colombia seven years ago to develop and evaluate mental health programs for vulnerable populations living in post-conflict contexts. He has vast experience researching and advising policymakers on the interface between mental health and political conflict in Colombia and beyond, and serves as an advisor to the Minister of Health and Social Protection. I am especially delighted that Fabio is my co-PI in our project on Pathways to Reconciliation. So we are going to start with each one of our presenters is speaking in turn. Depending on time, they will have a chance to react to each other's interventions, and then we will have time for questions from you, the audience. Please use the chat function that is being managed backstage by the amazing LSE public events team and PBS Rebecca Lee. So without any further ado, let me pass on uh, the word to Professor Lord Alderdice. Thank you very much indeed, Sandra. Thank you for the kind invitation to participate in this illustrious panel uh, and the opportunity to explore these really very challenging issues of reconciliation uh, and, uh, and post-conflict societies. I'm going to speak about it in a general sense and from various experiences, uh, not specifically Colombia, because there are other colleagues on the panel who are much more expert on, on Colombia. But I want to start with, with a very obvious observation, and that is that the conflict does actually have to be over if it's a post-conflict situation we're examining. And that's more difficult than it appears. Of course, uh, it's very important as far as possible for the violence to have come to an end. Though in many cases, uh, while the violence may have come to an end from some of the participants, there will be others uh, with whom it has not come to an end. 
That's very often the situation. It's often the case, for example, that if there's a, an insurgent organization, terrorist organization, um, it may split or there may be more than one. Uh, this is the case in Colombia, but it's also the case in, in many other places as well. And this makes it very difficult. Even if it is the case that all the participants, the partisans, have brought their violence to an end, it's not necessarily the case that the conflict has come to an end. Sometimes it's the case that people feel, well, that's as far as we can get at the moment. Uh, but uh, in Ireland, they used to say, we will put the pike back into the thatch and bring it back out again. In other words, we will hide it in the roof. And then we will bring it out again at a later stage when we think we, we might do better. And indeed, that is what happened over, over some centuries. And of course, in those situations, talking about any kind of reconciliation is very difficult because if there is not an intent uh, to be reconciled, it's really very challenging to bring it about. So it, it seems terribly obvious, but, but I find many people coming to me to talk about the possibility of reconciliation post-conflict. And when I ask them, is the conflict actually over? They say, well, no, no. Well, that makes it very difficult. Uh, and I think we have to reckon. It doesn't mean that nothing can be done. And it doesn't mean that nothing can be done with some groups of people. But it does mean that overall, the whole question of reconciliation and dealing with the conflict is a very difficult one. Many of our ideas about what is possible are, are remarkably recent. One of the things that gets talked about quite a lot, for example, is the notion of forgiveness. And when in, in 1940, uh, the German Luftwaffe bombed Coventry Cathedral, the 14th century Cathedral of St. Michael's, which had been there for such a long time and such a central feature of the city of Coventry. The following morning, the provost, the very Reverend Richard Howard, went down into the ruins of this marvellous building and he forgave those who had conducted the bombing and those who had ordered it. It was a quite remarkable intervention and indeed led to Coventry becoming an important centre of reconciliation. But it was a very unusual thing at the time, especially in the middle of a war. And it was not without his critics. Even later than that, when Lord Longford, who had long campaigned for reconciliation and forgiveness, wrote a book about it, he went and consulted a number of religious colleagues and found that some, for example, in the Jewish community, didn't believe that it was appropriate to forgive your enemies. That was a matter for God to do, not for us to forgive those who had harmed other people, not necessarily ourselves. So some of these ideas are relatively recent, and often they're really quite complex. Second thing I'd like to say about it is that Sometimes people think that it's necessary for everybody to reach agreement. And I often say about the situation that I was involved with most in Ireland, it wasn't a question of us reaching agreement, though, of course, we did reach a, an agreement, the Good Friday or Belfast Agreement. But actually, that was an agreement to disagree with each other without killing each other. And, and that's a huge achievement. Often people want a great deal more than that. But believe me, it's a considerable achievement to get that far. And in fact, in most situations where there are long-standing insurgencies or terrorist campaigns, that's the most that one can reasonably hope for. The idea that people will really agree with each other is asking rather a lot. 
because there are fundamental disagreements about what is the good. This was one of the points that the philosopher Isaiah Berlin made, that there is no agreement on the good. Uh, he, he said, well, what's good for the fox is not good for the rabbit. And it isn't going to be unless you can convince the fox to become a vegetarian, which is pretty unlikely. <laughs> so there is no agreement on the good. And, and we have to find some way in which our societies can operate with people having different perspectives of the good and what they want to achieve. And that often involves setting up institutions which hold us to behaving respectfully and fairly together, but not necessarily agreeing even on quite fundamental things. A further difficulty is the difficulty of letting go of difficult feelings. We can come to a point where we say, right, that's it. The fighting has to stop. But that doesn't mean that the feelings have to stop. And frankly, they don't. They continue on. And they're very difficult to deal with. It's really an enormous struggle. There's a great poem that spoke about someone nursing their wrath to keep it warm. And very often you find that in communities. The percentage of people who can genuinely forgive and let go is frankly relatively small for a whole series of very good reasons, as well as some less good ones. And sometimes expecting forgiveness is actually a bit unfair. It's, it's not a reasonable thing to expect from people. But I'll finish for the moment with telling you a story about how long it can take and what may be necessary. When I was Speaker of the Northern Ireland Assembly, I got a phone call one day to say that there were some First Nation people from North America that wanted to meet with me. Well, I, I, I was a bit puzzled why they wanted to meet, but I said, well, of course, yes, I'd be delighted to meet with them. And a number of people who were chiefs of First Nation in, in, in North America came into my office and sat down to have a chat. And I said, well, I'm absolutely delighted to meet you. You're very welcome, but why have you come? And they said, well... You see, in a way, you're the non-partisan representative of your people because you're the speaker of the assembly. And we believe that many of the problems we have as First Nation people are because we haven't forgiven your ancestors for what they came to our country and did to us. I said, well, that's not at all unreasonable from anything I've heard. What, but what do you want to do about it? Well, they said, we think that what we need to do is come and perform a forgiveness ceremony in our culture in a place where it will mean something. And I said, well, we can certainly do that. The, the central hall, the grand hall would be a great place to do it. People all throughout the building could hear you. And so they came with their feathers and leathers and drums, and they had a marvelous, uh, culturally appropriate event where they were forgiving our ancestors for what they had done to their ancestors. And they then went back and they read the story of that to the ground, to the earth, to Mother Earth in their own part of the world. They had found it necessary hundreds of years later to deal with the problems they continued to have because they hadn't been able to reconcile themselves and their ancestors to us and our ancestors. I thought it was absolutely marvelous and beautiful and a tremendous lesson, but also a serious warning about how difficult it can be and how long it can take to deal with the tragic results of conflict. Thank you.
Thank you very much for a wonderful uh, starting uh, uh, talk. I'm going to move uh, into Fred Frederico, our next speaker, with perspectives now from South America, Mexico. Okay, so I, first of all, I, I would like to, to say good afternoon in Europe, good morning in, to those in the Americas. Before I start, I, I would like to thank the London School of Economics for the invitation. This is really an honor to participate in this extraordinary panel. In the next 10 minutes, I will share our experience in Mexico with a powerful model named Schools of Forgiveness and Reconciliation, or ESPERE, an acronym for the Spanish Escuelas de Perdón y Reconciliación. In a context of uh, growing crime and violence, we could ask, in which way forgiveness and reconciliation might be helpful to reflect on experiences of political conflict and sharp social divisions? Or we could also ask, what, are, what impact can we have uh, with these initiatives? And if it work, if those work, how could, how could we make them viral? Our story in Mexico starts 17 years ago with a group of visionary people at the Loyola Cultural Center in Monterey, Mexico, that brought a program from Colombia to Mexico, the SPERI. This program, founded by uh, our friend uh, Leonel Narvaez, is a ludic and experience, an experiential workshop for people who decide to, to to live a personal journey of liberation from the impact of harm in their lives. Our 40 plus hour and 12 month, 12 module program gives participants about what forgiveness and reconciliation are and how to set on that journey. The basis of ESPERE lies in the simple principle that human beings can be trained for violence or benevolence, for retaliation or compassion, that forgiveness is an art that can be learned and that this process contains countless benefits for the forgivers and their collectivity. The methodology re relies on small peer support groups where participants can safely tell their story and make catharsis. In a simple but solid way, it incorporates, among other techniques, elements of group therapy, human development, conflict resolution, and restorative justice. During ESPERE, we introduced the secondary wounds of violence and injustice, which are often unaddressed by human rights and other liberal peace uh, reconciliation practices. Uh, when harmed, both victim and, per and perpetrators are also damaged to, the, to three important columns of their lives, their self-confidence, their socialization, and their meaning of life. Forgiveness will be presented as the best alternative to overcome the subjective interpretation we apply to our offender in justifying our anger and hatred, which can anchor us in victimhood. By cleansing the pain, the pain and healing the wounds of violence, memories can become less rigid and the victim's horizon of hope and agency can be reinstated. The results of forgiveness 
are new understandings that serve to restore people and right relations. Forgiveness is a personal journey for healing and breaking free from the wounds of injustice and violence. Forgiveness does not change your past, we say, but it does change your future. As an offense, as an offense can, can also form lasting negative emotions of rage and, and resentment in you, which affect your physical and mental health and which can further the cycle of violence. Forgiving moves forward our lives and our search for justice from the urgency of revenge to the exercise of kindness and compassion. On the other hand, reconciliation is the capacity to regain the trust between those separated by an offense. Giving forgiveness is a positive way of returning a moral responsibility to the offender, recognizing each one of us as part of the human community. This facilitates new beginnings where everything seemed to have entered. We start talking about uh, reconciliation, making care our priority. We agree on the importance of dignity and care for well-being. We also build truth, recognizing that truth is not my truth. Like Lord Alderdice was saying, truth are built together with others. Our logic is that forgiveness restores persons and reconciliation restores trusts and relationships. In a reconciliation, we don't seek to negotiate a pact, which sounds more like a business deal. On the contrary, we seek, we seek to accord a pact, which tastes more of heart, of compassion, of a gift. In summary, uh, forgiveness in one hand is an exercise with one and for oneself. It generates a narrative turn from desire for retaliation to compassion. And reconciliation, on the other hand, is a new approach towards the others. It generates a narrative turn from distrust to trust. Now, how to make this a culture? or how to go about positioning this civic culture of forgiveness and reconciliation in our lives, in our world. Well, the idea of bringing Espere from Colombia to Mexico 17 years ago, and then the, the good accident in my life that I met Leonel Narvaez, the founder, evolved to a nonprofit organization of the third sector that operates with a minimum budget and today has a network of more than 600 voluntary facilitators actively engaged in ESPERE. They work in Mexico in 41 independent training centers affiliated to our organization, which, is, which are located in, in 23 different cities in, this, in the country. For spreading this civil, civil culture of forgiveness and reconciliation, we have established formal and informal alliances with other institutions. Acting as a service provider, we simply support the development of ESPERI through the allies' networks. I'll give you some examples of these. First, we've been participating in projects for reconstruction of social fabric with the Center of Research and Social Action for Peace, or CIAS Peace, for the, which is managed by the Jesuits in Mexico. We also have a formal agreement with the Mexican Catholic Church 
which has been growing nicely. We have a formal agreement as well with the Mexican Evangelic Church. Besides, we do participate in, in different groups that are working penitentiaries. Working, in, working with inmates is, is very, very strong, very positive, has had very good results. But then what has been the impact of Espera in Mexico? Well, we estimate that during the last 10 years, approximately 30,000 people have benefited directly from the worship and close to 120,000 indirectly. Our evaluation approach has been a qualitative one with a simple open testimony at the end of the workshop. We do recognize that we need to develop impact measurement tools for our work with more data and detail. In a sample of results from last year, we did a pilot test with people that took the workshop and we found that the great majority of the participants say have succeeded to their wounds, have changed their attitudes, and have improved their decision-making process. In addition, they have developed new narratives or restorative practices to recover self-confidence and emotional abilities. Regarding changes in well-being after Spere, they say have improved their interpersonal relations. Some say have been able to reconcile with their offender some others say that have emotional peace or have self-esteem improvement. Finally, let me share with you that this revolutionary pedagogical model has spread today to 22 countries and taught the practices of forgiveness to more than 2 million people who have decided to live a personal journey of liberation from the impact of violence in their lives. Espere has also been widely researched and was recognized by the United Nations, uh, by the UNESCO Education for Peace Prize in 2006 for its, for its significant contribution to peace building in Latin America. To close my presentation, I hope I was able to infect you with the virus of forgiveness and reconciliation through SPEDI. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Federico, for a, a very, very uh, inspiring presentation of Esperi. And uh, we are going to move on. I'm going to invite Nikki Lacey uh, to continue. Please. Thank you. Lacey. Thank you very much, Sam. Thank you. Thank you for your generous, very generous introduction. And it's really a great honor to be on this very distinguished panel today on discussing this very important topic. And I, I feel, as a criminal lawyer, very, um, very much at a disadvantage following that very inspiring, um, inspiring talk. Because it's, I think it's worth saying that Federico, your your contribution reminds us that it's not just ideas and will, will that you need, but you need a huge amount of hopefulness and hard work to make progress in this very difficult area. And so I salute all of you who, who work practically on the ground in this field. Um, so as I've mentioned, I'm a, I'm a criminal lawyer and there are two reasons, well, further reasons why I feel a little bit uh, hesitant about my potential contribution. And they are that first of all, criminal law, unfortunately in many, many societies is, is a cause of division rather than of reconciliation. Um, unfortunately, and I'll talk about perhaps about why why that is. Um, 
But it's also, I feel, bad because most of my work is actually on global north countries and particularly on, on England and Wales. Uh, but I'm hoping that we can nonetheless learn something, if only from the mistakes uh, that are often made by even the most uh, well-funded criminal justice systems about the conditions under which we can avoid uh, adding to conflict and division and hopefully move towards reconciliation. And I think that is a reasonable aspiration for criminal lawyers and people working in the criminal process, because after all, um, at some level, criminal law must be about reconciliation, at least in the sense of allowing people to move on from conflict. Um, I think this really comes back to the, the the question that Professor Lord Alderdice raised about what, what counts as post-conflict. If we had a criminologist here, they would be very likely to say there's no such thing as a post-conflict society in a general sense, because a huge amount of crime comes out of conflict and, of course, produces more conflict. So crime is par excellence, a, a sort of conflict-rich uh, phenomenon. And uh, surely it must be one of the jobs of the criminal justice system to try to resolve that conflict. And that means at some level, effecting reconciliation, uh, or at least in the very limited sense. And again, this uh, comes back to some of the points Lord Alderdice made uh, to enhance the possibility of peaceful coexistence, even if ideological conflict, conflicts of interest uh, and, and value remain under the surface. So uh, at the very least, uh, trying to produce a sort of minimum of peaceful coexistence. Now, unfortunately, criminal law has often not performed at all well in that way, and it's not difficult to see why. Um, the sort of standard philosophies of what criminal justice is all about have, uh, in modern societies, basically focused on either retribution, on giving the offender their just deserts, which usually leaves them very much at odds with the broader society while doing very little to actually um, help the victims of crime, or deterrence or incapacitation, which also tend to impose costs that are very much targeted on individuals rather than thinking about the broader social fabric. Of course, Rehabilitation is perhaps the nearest sort of traditional uh, goal of punishment that takes us a little bit closer to reconciliation. But that brings us to one of the, I think, you know, sort of great ironies of this field. In, in the development of modern criminal justice systems, state organized criminal justice systems, it's well known that victims of crime really got sort of squeezed out. Their conflicts were taken away from them and, and given to the state so that criminal law is prosecuted by the state on behalf of the broader society. And that really meant that until relatively recently, victims didn't have much of a say. They were often treated very disrespectfully in terms of court processes. They perhaps weren't even being properly informed about the conduct of the case and so on and so forth. And as you'll all be very, very well aware, there's been a big revival in the last, let's say, 20 years of a focus on victims, a so-called victims movement, which perfectly reasonably has put those interests and needs of victims, whether it's welfare needs or process needs, back on the agenda. And that is all as it should be. The problem is it doesn't really fit with the sort of 
rather oppositional theory of the criminal process. And so we've tried to squeeze victims in um, and we've acknowledged politically the harms uh, to victims and the lack of respect that victims have met with. But that has itself actually fed into, ironically, I think in many countries, certainly in the UK, um, a, a greater demand for punishment of the kind that actually is dysfunctional from the point of view of social conflict. Um, an important uh, caveat to that is the development of restorative justice systems of one kind or another in many countries now, but they tend to remain, they, they of course co-opt, bring the victim in, give the victim a voice and try to set up a direct you know, negotiation and uh, settlement, in a sense, between the victim with some kind of state mediation, if you like. And that's a very important development. But the fact is that in most countries, uh, the legal system puts restorative justice to one side. It tends to be a relatively uh, minor phenomenon, perhaps particularly organised, oriented to young people. Um, that's certainly true. It's true in England. So we, we're left with this sort of structural issue. We, we know that uh, victims matter, their needs matter. We know also that if victims' needs aren't properly catered for, um, that creates more of a demand for punishment. And we also know that punishment causes further social conflict by uh, often stigmatising, blaming uh, offenders. So over the last few years, I've been working with a colleague who's a philosopher, but also a group therapist uh, who did group therapy with people, many of whom had an intimate acquaintance with the criminal justice system. And she has been developing uh, what she calls a model of responsibility without blame. In other words, the orientation of her therapy. And I imagine very similar issues come up in your Espere schools, uh, Federico, is to persuade people to change but the key insight is to do that you have to hold them responsible you have to work with them as agents so that should help uh, in uh, taking victims with you because you're not de you're not sort of excusing these uh, people who have done harmful things but in order for them to be able to change to choose to change you they cannot you cannot blame them effectively or stigmatize them they have because they have to believe that they can change they have to believe that they can change and so Hannah has been working with this model of responsibility without blame um, and in our later work we've been thinking really about the question of how far could you go further than that and try to institutionalize in the criminal justice system sort of institutional counterparts of interpersonal forgiveness and what we really mean there is trying to get out of the system the things that stigmatize in the longer term that produce more and more conflict um, and uh, basically sort of help to wipe the slate clean and there are some very very obvious things that we can do to at least make the system less blaming uh, if not uh, perhaps yet more forgiving. Um, let me just mention in closing some of the, the key barriers apart from, you know, the political need to take victims with you, which I imagine in post-conflict societies, transitional societies is one of the absolutely major issues. And indeed, both of you have, the previous speakers have, have spoken about that. Um, the first thing I think to, um, to recognise, and it's really a, 
uh, a shout out to those of you working in post-conflict societies, is that this is really, really hard in part because there's every common sense reason to think that it's harder to motivate people to get on board with moving towards the virtuous circle of reconciliation and away from the vicious circle of punishment, blaming and division um, in societies with what psychologists are called high associational value. In other words, societies where people expect on the whole good things to come out of their associations, their long-term relations with other. And those are typically societies with high trust, with stable institutions and so on. And that's very, very hard in a post-conflict society. So we have a kind of irony that the societies that need this most also face most barriers to it. Um, the second uh, thing, though, I think is, is, co is, is very much an issue for the psychologists here, and that is... Um, can we get people to change if there is always a background le level of coercion in the process, which if we're talking about criminal justice, there always is. Um, so I think that there are the conditions under which you can get people to change their, their minds. And that's the difficulty of that has already been mentioned. And then thirdly, I was going to mention again, Lord Alderdice has already referred to this. There's a really tricky issue about who has the standing to forgive and who's uh, acts of forgiveness or symbolic rituals of forgiveness are regarded as legitimate by the people who need to regard them as legitimate. So these seem to me to be really key things we still need to think about. Thank you so much. I think you're muted. Thank you very much for, for uh, inspiring also, you know, the dimension of the challenge. Uh, certainly when it comes to our legal systems, you know, I think we encapsulated that very, very well. So uh, we're going to move on uh, to Fabio. Fabio Vitorbo is our last speaker. So um, he's going to conclude this first round of interventions. Fabio, please. Thank you. I'm going to share my screen uh, and put it into presentation mode. Uh, if you could confirm that you're looking at my screen, I would appreciate it. Thank you. Um, <laughs> it was difficult to come to what I want to talk to uh, you about today. If anything, because I knew I was going to force uh, speakers would be ahead of me. And uh, knowing their work, <laughs> it really sets a very high bar. So thinking about this, I decided that perhaps the best thing I can contribute to is talk about the issue of our peace agreement in Colombia and reconciliation. If anything that runs through it, the entire peace agreement that has been lauded as perhaps one of the most complex peace agreements that has been signed, and in fact, the one that put an end to a 60 year old war, uh, the last of the Western Hemisphere, um, I decided that I would should reflect upon and let you know that throughout the entire peace agreement, the issue of reconciliation is structural. So I will first address what is it that the R agreement has to do with reconciliation and the importance of that notion for us. Uh, Secondly, I would like to just also bring some points because uh, part of the title is Colombia and Beyond. And we just reached a five-year milestone uh, of our peace agreement. And we have now in the last week 
Uh, Saturday, we, we celebrated the five years of the signing of the agreement uh, and with a lot of acrimony, to say the least. So let me just simply begin by going briefly. So what is it that is in the peace agreement uh, so that we can perhaps bring it to Colombia? Uh, this is the final peace agreement. In fact, there were six points. Uh, it's an agreement that took, as you know, over five, six years to finalize. Uh, as you, the world knows, we voted on it, and it's, the vote came out negative in terms of the accepting by the voters of the peace agreement, that, which has set uh, forth to us a, a profound um, rift on terms of what we want to be our, our, our future in terms of our past. Um, most recently, President Santos pointed out, and correctly so, that one of the most important parts of the agreement was the first point, which is towards a new Colombian countryside, comprehensive reform. As it's commonly known, Colombia has perhaps one of the largest inequities in terms of land ownership. This point of the agreement is meant to reconcile that structural divide that has existed, that broken relationship, that maybe it's not just something that one can say it's going to be repaired, but it's something that's existed since we, since we started. For this part of the agreement, we decided, at least the, the agreement tells us, that we ought to just simply make sure that whatever we do in those places that were most affected by the conflict, which we call the, uh, we should, the programs for territorial development, they should be, this territory should be given the best and most uh, greatest effort and inside to reestablish what they lost during, during our conflict. Initially, it was done with the inhabitants of this, these areas, but recently, perhaps in most claim, that that in initial impetus has been lost. We, in, that, in this section, have also have plans and institutions to redistribute land, to take back what was, in fact, uh, uh, taken away by military groups. The second point of our, our agreement uh, is uh, political participation. And again, as you may, as I will let you know, the, this point was designed to, to give and the rights and to ensure that everyone who wants political participation, including those people who have joined in political parties, which go run counter to the governing body or the political party in power, will be allowed to exist, will be allowed to group, and will be allowed to have a voice in the, as, in the political decisions. Then they also have, in this agreement, it was consigned that they, we ought to have specific mechanisms, specific democratic mechanisms that would allow people in different segments of our population to participate in political decisions in a variety of in very many um, diverse themes. Uh, we wanted also in the second point of, of, of this agreement, uh, create mechanisms by which the political uh, power would be turned into the people who would 
in fact, be in different regions of the country to give them some form of participation, which will, of course, need to describe much more deeply in the terms of the democratic uh, means or the participation of different groups, most people, the people who demobilized and the people who were affected by this conflict in different legislative acts. What we also said, at least in terms of the end of the conflict, was the following. We said that, in fact, the mechanism by which the uh, revolutionary armed forces of Colombia, those in the popular, uh, uh, what we call the Herzog Popular Popular Army, should leave their weapons, would be a very progressive step in which they would just simply not simply decide just that they were just surrendering, but they were just simply leaving their weapons, surrendering their weapons to us, not as a sign of submission, but as a sign of agreement. That particular point also made provisions so that the FARC, as we will, I will just simply use their acronym, would also be able and be allowed to again begin to join the country, not only in what its social uh, movements, but only political movements, and also, and most importantly, this would be done with their interests of the people who demobilized in mind. These are, at least this particular, this third point, which, which put an end of the conflict, had in fact allowed them, gave them provisions for where to begin to reintegrate to the, to, the, to the country, at least to the normal life of the country. Our, first, our fourth point in this, in this agreement was and one for which has been particularly conflicting for us, and, and we, one which we sat in the, uh, laid down in the, agreement, in the agreement, as one where, in fact, we would find jointly a solution to the drug problem that we have in Colombia, particularly that of production. Under this particular point, what was most substantive in it was substantial in what they was we agreed upon and was agreed upon, that there would be a program where there would be crop substitution. In other words, we would foster those people in the different regions to begin to eradicate, most uh, particularly their coca plantations for other productive enterprises, other productive types of uh, plantations, for instance, cacao, which has been in the post-conflict countries, one of the most uh, prominent ways to begin to move towards um, a better uh, uh, countryside and and a a much better integrated, uh, uh, say economic economic integration. the fifth point, which was literally the one that has the longest, the longest and the most longest part of the agreement and the most profound uh, part of the agreement, and the, which covers an extensive amount of actions to begin to repair, which was done, at least the, all the, the wounds that were opened uh, with the victims, uh, made, it, made it very importantly uh, clear that we had to do take several actions. We had to give them the truth. We would have to in, uh, have an in, integrated system uh, for the truth, which is our, what we know our uh, truth commission. We would also have to provide for them some justice, which is the ex- special jurisdiction, jurisdiction uh, uh, especial para la paz, the special jurisdiction for peace, where in fact people 
from where offenders are beginning to let's say let us know what the crimes were and what part they took in that uh, in those actions um, very recently one of our most uh, very difficult uh, problems at this fifth point of the agreement was is the case 101 where people who kidnapped were were confessing or letting their country and the victims know of the actions that took place during in the in, during the periods in which they were in the conflict was in, in place so that has been particularly difficult uh, for us we have also asked set up in motion that the victims ought to be repaired and that particular bridge that particular damage those wounds that have been I mean, appear during our conflict, have been directed, our actions have been directed to providing them with land, providing them with restitution, providing them with all the means that the states have to create, give them some the satisfaction, some or provide some satisfaction for what, uh, what for the actions that they had that were impinged, infringed upon them. We have also, in that particular point, say, said that we are guaranteeing, the agreement says that we won't repeat, there will not be a return to the conflict. So as you may see in paper, we're assuring that we won't go back. And that's perhaps one, a, a very difficult concept as to going back when we haven't left a particular condition, as John mentioned, perhaps one can say post-conflict, what does it mean if this conflict is still uh, moving on? We also have at the end of the time, uh, in terms of uh, our commitment to the world and to the country, is that we have also decided that we would be monitored and would be the implementation would be monitored and would, would have international endorsement. Uh, for us, that means in very concrete uh, steps that the uh, Prague Institute at Notre Dame, in, uh, Notre Dame University has been monitoring each one of the points agreed, whether they have been started, whether they're on way, whether they've finished, or whether they have not finished yet. And we have a system for tracking as well as one that exists in the, in the United Nations. I will move on to the next Thing because one, what I was thinking perhaps might be uh, a novel idea to present, or at least some ideas which we, which we might discuss, is and beyond what have we learned in these five years from our conflict in terms of what we agreed would be our principle or the principal ideas that we used to end it. And I just simply start by the following. As it, as it says, knowing that poverty, conflict, social capital, mental health, and social well-being are intertwined and arguably contribute to peace and reconciliation. What actions can one reckon based, based on our peace process? Where are we? There are estimates it's supposed that it was supposed to take 15 years to, to accomplish all the agreements. Currently, that has been said maybe 26, maybe 20, 30 years from now, from where we are. But what has been somewhat what is something which is in the air, as I would say, in the wind in Colombia about our peace agreement. And as you know, the peace agreement was negotiated under one uh, government, but in the implementation currently is under a different government. 
So that has been a conflict for us in that the, the, who, those who've signed are not the ones who are being implemented. And unfortunately, um, what I say it in a positive way, look, maybe we should, for future agreements, for future negotiations, figure out a way. I'm sure that's not difficult. I know they tried very hard in Colombia to just make it such that it would be so locked, the agreement, that it would be independent of partisanship. Um, also, there's very important issues right now in Colombia, and the issue is the financing of the programs, the promised programs. There's a great concern as we go into our new tributary reforms and to essentially a tax system will be reformed, that some of it might be underfunded. Uh, and that may have a lot of uh, negative consequences as the peace agreement was passed and it was meant to have the, and embody the concept of positive peace. That is not just the absence of violence, but something that would lead us to a better society. And that is of great concern. Initially, in our second point, um, and this is again something that has been debated quite uh, recently, is uh, how to, 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 if those financial uh, resources or what programs, how should they be allocated? How should they be implemented? We tried very hard to do this, uh, decentralize it. But recently, the change again, the change of, of views from one government to the other may be in effect uh, hindering the participation in, this, the, in the communities uh, in order to make their own decisions. Uh, in one of the points, which I missed, uh, I didn't, as, uh, of the agreement, it is specified that there should be a, a, a mechanism of protection uh, from violence exerted against social leaders, exerted against uh, environmental leaders, and exerted against the population. It is no secret that following the signing of the agreement, we have had a, a slew, I don't want to give numbers very specific, they're big numbers, of social leaders that have been killed by different factions that are still in contention. There are some positive issues about our peace agreement. For instance, and one of the most important ones that we should mention and is that the people who demobilized from the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, which about 13,000, give a couple of dozen here and there, have remained demobilized. Those people who did not demobilize at the time when the agreement was signed are still in active com combat and they're still not part of that movement that we want to join us. I want to also eventually finish up with two contrasting views of reconciliation and begin to address Federico and the, the work that Professor Jovtelovich and myself have been doing with our teams. But I want to just stress one simple thing about the kind of work that I do with this, which is deals with mental health. And recently, one of our leaders, Angela Robledo, not recently, but four years, six years ago, but I still, I don't think that's has changed, mentioned that the great conclusion of this debate as to whether the, what we promised in terms of the mental health, in terms of the psychosocial programs, 
for the victims of the conflict should be or continue to be emphasized, she clearly stated that that is the case. It reads, and I'll just simply paraphrase it a little bit more, is that we still have to, that, that we have made some progress, but and this, there have been institutions that, such as the Victims Unit, and there have been institute, also in the Institute of uh, Colombian uh, Welfare that has been doing a phenomenal amount of work to try to work in the psychosocial program. And that is that we still need to, to, to have a much greater effort on what are our psychosocial uh, programs for victims, that it's still, a, a, a still, we still need to put a much greater effort. Um, I was going to bring some numbers into this, uh, but I'll just simply let you know, uh, give them to you as one of my um, contributions to the Ministry of, uh, of, um, of Health. And it is that we have currently, we have about 9,200,000 victims. Of those, we have only given psychosocial assistance to 600,000. So you can see by that number, the need that we have for programs that are the third factor, but also we need, and this is part of Sandra's work and my work to make sure that in, in, a great, in a good sense, in a great sense, they are effective. I want to finish by two little things. This kind of reconciliation definitions that we have. And the first one is one that we use for in Colombia. Uh, it's reconciliation can be understood as a multi-level process of restoring broken relationships, a theme that John and I have discussed often. And I often wonder whether we, about the word restoring, I'm, I'm uncertain as if, if we had any relationships, maybe it would start as broken. But this is among individuals or groups of a given society whereby they find ways to deal with a violent past and envision the goal of building a cohesive society in which their rights are acknowledged and respected. That's one vision. And I want to end my, my brief intervention by going back to the person who inspired a little, much of our work with uh, Professor Yevtelovich. And his vision is, it's almost a, a, a vision of the individual. What is it that is important about the, the individual? And in his words, forgiveness is understood on the one hand as a re-meaning of the offense and as a narrative turn that goes from revenge to compassion. And from another point of view, forgiveness is a political virtue as a human right, as an exercise of democracy and respect for the dignity of the other. Reconciliation, on the other hand, is understood as the exercise that restores trust between the victim and offender by reestablishing axiological normative conditions that guide and regulate their new relationships. This is, last, the latter is the notion that has inspired the work that uh, Professor Yopkelovich and I are doing. What is the meaning? Why do we do this work? And part of the efforts in, of this work has been a joint effort by Colombia and the United Kingdom to establish a database, to establish, to acquire knowledge that would allow us, Colombia, to foster a stable and durable peace. This is all couched 
in trying to acquire ways and learning about ways in which by acting that we can have with people, working with people, we can allow them to begin their process, their individual process of forgiveness and reconciliation so that we can have and foster a stable peace. I end this, I hope I haven't extended more than I should have. Thank you, Fabio. Thank you very much uh, for uh, your presentation, sharing such important details uh, of the Colombian reality and the peace process, as well as the work uh, being done on reconciliation. Let me uh, invite the panel, perhaps, to um, have uh, a second round of uh, brief interventions, perhaps reacting briefly to each other before we open to um, questions. We have already some very good questions coming in, but uh, let me give you the opportunity. Please, Professor uh, Alderdice. Thank you very much, and thank you very much to all the colleagues for uh, their interventions. If I might perhaps briefly respond to them, I think what Federico described is, is a, a both very commendable and hugely impressive uh, initiative uh, which sounds like it is having a very important impact. It did raise for me the question as to how far culture is important in these things. Uh, recently at a, a conference we ran at Oxford where we were looking at some of these issues, a colleague was speaking about time that he had spent looking at some of these questions in Japan. And, and people simply didn't understand what he was talking about because it was so foreign to the culture uh, that 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 they um, uh, that they lived in, and I, I think that there is some truth in this. I, I, I find even within Europe, different countries uh, have different cultures. Uh, north of Europe, south of Europe, east and west, especially in terms of dealing with these kinds of things. So I think it's a very important thing to try to explore uh, the, the cultural differences. Um, Nicola raised some very important questions as well. I, I remember working as a psychiatrist when people would come along having had uh, very difficult experiences. And one of the questions was whether to pursue legal uh, restitution. And I came to the conclusion that I had to put to the patient the fact that if they wanted to proceed to law, they needed to hold on to their anger because they would need it to give them the necessary drive to make it through the legal process. On the other hand, if they were prepared to let go at an individual level, talk about you know forgiveness, reconciliation, and all of these kinds of things, they were unlikely to sustain the kind of necessary emotional energy to see them through a legal process. And I think that there is an element of this, and, and I think she pointed this up really uh, uh, in, in what she was describing, the, the problems, the, the way that law can help in various kinds of ways, but it also produces certain kinds of uh, difficulties or obstacles. And in some of our own work, uh, for example, exploring at a community level some of the terrible things that had happened, they then ran up against what people regarded as human rights requirements. And some important initiatives had to be abandoned 
because they were regarded as as, as not being human rights compliant. For, uh, in a totally different situation in Rwanda, for example, the Gachacha courts, which were dealing with huge numbers of people who had been damaged, many human rights activists were saying, well, you, well, that's all very well, but you know, it's against human rights law. And the people in Rwanda were saying, yeah, but we have no capacity whatever to implement law in the way that you're describing. So I think what Nicholas says about how this is a really quite difficult thing is absolutely right. And there isn't the right answer to it. I mean, it's just, it's a struggle that we, uh, that we have to continue to work with. And then this question of reconciliation and, and, and both Federico and, and Fabio referred to it. it, it re reconciliation has some kind of sense of coming back together again after a conflict. But what happens if there never was any conciliation yes. in the first place? And, and I think that's true, yes. especially true in lots of colonial situations and so on, that there never exactly. was a time when people got on well together. So is it reconciliation at all? Uh, or is it some kind of new set of relationships that never existed before that we're trying to construct? And that's a different kind of phenomenon. Um, I, I, I'm trying to understand what is necessary. And I suppose the final comment that I would make is, looking at how we can make interventions that help at the level. I mean, Fabio was talking about millions of people as victims. How on earth do you deal with that? And, and I guess what strikes me is that after the First World War, Germany was defeated and, and you know, had no alternative but to accept it was an unconditional defeat and, and so on. But, but the Treaty of Versailles and, and the reparations and all that came with it in many ways, people would look back at that and say, you know, I think that this set up a context in which it was possible for fascism to rise because of the anger at the way they'd been dealt with. After the Second War, there was also a total defeat of Germany, but the response of the, of the powers was the Marshall Plan. It was to try to create a new context, which was not about... Uh, uh, reparations and and, and, and and punishment and so on. But on the contrary, we say, well, you did all of these things, but we're going to give you a load of money and we're going to work with you. And it created a context for the European project, which of course has been uh, remarkable, um, possibly possibly uh, a project that never happened in any context before, but but had a very different outcome to the outcome after the First World War. So, I mean, I, I, I think the, the interventions have been marvellous, and I've appreciated very much what colleagues have said, and they have raised things that I can think we can continue to explore, not just today, but, but subsequently. So thank you very much for them. Thank you, uh, Professor Alderdice. Federico, I can see you, please. Thank you. Well, first of all, I, uh, let me, <clears throat> I, I cannot say more than I, I agree regarding the, the comments of Dr. Valdez on, on culture. First, when we first think about how to go about changing the culture of a community or, or simply the culture of an, organ, of an organization, it takes a lot of work. It, look, it takes a lot of change management. It, lo it takes a lot of effort to, do, to change the culture. But then even before that, it, definitely when we are working on forgiveness and reconciliation in different regions or countries, for instance, we do come in, in Mexico, for instance, we have a, a huge Catholic influence. So the concept of forgiveness and the concept, the concept of reconciliation has a lot of influence from the Catholic Church here. But on, on the one hand, but on the other, we have a lot of uh, uh, original uh, people in their territories. In fact, they have self-governance self, self 
governed uh, societies. And we have jumped in working on, on, on this SPERE program or this uh, program for, for uh, forgiveness and reconciliation with them. And it has been very powerful as well. But, but definitely, as, as you say, the, the, we have to really have to bear in mind who are we working with and what is the, what is the concept of culture, cultural concept they have of forgiveness and reconciliation and then work from there and not to try to impose an idea of, oh yes, you have to for, forget, uh, you have to clean your, your, your pain because you were damaged by, a, by an offender. Wait a minute, it doesn't work just simply like that. But, but anyway, and, and having said that, it's, it's a lot of work, it's a recognition that we have to be very sensitive to, to work with the people and to let them find a solution for themselves and not, not we providing the solution for the fact. And that brings me to the point that, that, that Professor, Professor Nicola Lacey was doing on, on criminal law and the efforts of trying to stabilize, stabilize or, 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 or organize somehow, as, 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 as John was also saying, to, to organize somehow the, the, the way after a crisis. But, but then probably when we, when we talk about these reconciliation centers that we are trying to implement as well in Mexico, that they are already working in, in Colombia, for putting some mediators that are not officers from the government, but they, they are from the community. We choose those mediators as part of the community, and probably that's part, part that could be a good solution for at least civil uh, law and, and trying to, to find this agreement in, in civil discussions uh, among the people in, in one community, uh, that could really work. And uh, we've seen that it's, it's working, so we will try to implement it here again. But And somehow helping the legal institutions, helping the legal officers as well on, on, on expediting the process and at least to understand what's going on in a better fashion. Not that we provide a solution, but yes, we provide elements for the solution that they first build the truth together, the offender and the and the and the, and the other party. So, so that's part of the process we've been working on, and or at least we're imagining to work on this at the, at the same way they've been doing in Colombia. And, and and finally, for Fabio, it is amazing all the work you've been doing, and and I, it's, it's impressive that uh, what has happened uh, uh, on on all the analysis and all the. Uh, we would like to tap on all that knowledge and experience you have had to, to say, well, how, how to go about implementing those measurements and, and those ideas of so many people that has been uh, offended, uh, to put it that way, in, in our countries, in Latin America in general, and, and how to go about supporting those people with social programs and community programs and all these programs for reconstruction of the social fabric. I think that's, we are an urgent, we have an urgent need of doing that in, in our region. Thank you very much. Thank you, Frederick, uh, Frederico. I think I'm going to, Nikki, yes, please. No? Well, just a very, very brief point, picking up on the point John made about culture. And I think it's just worth saying in this context, because sometimes third countries get involved in trying to help set up up these uh, reconciliation processes and really this comes out so strongly from Fabio's uh, very textured 
discussion of, of the process in Colombia. There really isn't, it, it has to come from people with a really deep understanding of the culture, the institutional structure, the power relations. And it can't, there can't be a sort of model of whether it's restorative justice or truth and reconciliation commissions. It just has to be built up in context. And that's come out so strongly, I think, from what all three of you have, have said. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Nikki. Yes, and I, uh, I think that I'm going to gentle, gently uh, invite uh, some of the questions we already have from the audience so that as you react to each other, you could also address some of the questions from our audience because they are Perfect. coming in. And I think we have um, also to, to engage with, with uh, what they are asking, some very good questions. So for, uh, uh, for uh, you who would like to react to that, we're talking about culture. Uh, someone is asking, could it be possible to consider the problem of Colombia or the problem of reconciliation as a consequence of a culture of violence and not only of armed groups groups in conflict, but a culture of violence that needs to be recognized and delegitimized by all parties and addressed through public policies designed from the arts, the justice, education and health systems. So a more comprehensive, perhaps. Uh, that's one question. I'll take another one too. So just to exercise your 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 spark, uh, are there any preconditions that people who are willing to agree to disagree without violence or even forgive or reconcile come with? That is to say, do these results, peace and reconciliation, require predisposed people? And if so, can we in academia and policy contribute to this predisposition? <laughs> Anyone would like to jump here? Uh, I, I will ask. I will, <laughs> I, I will. I'm not very good at interpreting questions. <laughs> so I'll try not to, to give a random answer uh, in terms of uh, uh, the culture of violence. Uh, that is a question that has, we, in Colombia, we sort of think of ourselves as very unique. And um, for many, many decades, uh, Colombia had perhaps uh, a, a, a gigantic number of violence, crimes and uh, deaths, which has come down considerably. Not too long ago, uh, we were asked if we, we if we were a culture of violence, and uh, our numbers right now are going up again. But they came down, uh, and not those numbers, not the numbers related to the conflict. Those were not anywhere near what the numbers were to deaths unrelated to the conflict. They have come down. It's it's um, for some reason, at least, uh, in, uh, we are seeing less of that, but they're increasing. Uh, People who have who are engaged and they're called um, violence experts have been analyzing the trends uh, in the world and across cultures of, of what has going what is happening with violence and conflicts. While interstate violence has in fact almost disappeared, what is the greatest concern is violence within 
a particular region. So for some people say micro violence, that has been increasing and Colombia is not all that different. But even within a country, even with those cultural differences in terms of whether or not we are violent or not violent, whether we can control it with more, some people would control it with higher uh, jail terms, and, which we know hasn't really worked all that well. But even within our country, we, we see that currently the conceptions the, 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 of what is violent changes uh, quite, and, and we saw that in our work in our different regions. So culturally, uh, even within Colombia, there's regions of how people engage in, in conflict among, uh, amongst themselves. But there's also a greater idea, I, I think, and two, two more ideas I want to comment upon. And um, in terms of the, the issue of what's different in Japan from in Colombia, in terms of forgiveness, in terms of acceptance or dealing with violence, uh, one of the most interesting experience of the Schools for Forgiveness and Reconciliation was that it was con conducted in what I call my native Boston, where they had a, prob a, a program which were called uh, uh, Values Are Better Than Violence. And it, it were the same principles, and it seems to have worked uh, very nicely in, 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 in both uh, in both the, both in Boston and works and worked in, in Colombia. Uh, I'm, I'm going to uh, I, actually there was one more thing that the psychological issue, what might be necessary across individuals to be able to switch narratives, I'm a psychologist and my belief of course context matters, but there is some nature, something which unites us as, as, as a human race, I would say. Uh, and what unites us, I, I would believe, and I, extremely, uh, I strongly believe, is a mechanism which would allow, that allows us, in, in a sense, a, a rational mechanism that allows us to understand the differences between being what one is now and the potential that one has where one to change one's beliefs, one's thinkings, and acknowledge the context in one leaves. That this is, I think, one of the, I would just, I mean, I'll just initially call just a psychological mechanism that allows us to, to engage. The issue of violence is, I'm, I'm going to stop here because I had some thoughts and I wanted to confer with uh, Nicola about human rights and, and violence. Uh, because that's a, a, a giant concern for us as well here. It's mostly state-sanctioned violence, uh, state-sanctioned, not, not state violence, which is what we're dealing with in Colombia right now, how much of it is being tolerated and how much it's being propitiated by the state. Thank you, Fabio. I can see that Jun wants to say something and uh, perhaps Nikki will want to react to that. Can I just add one more question that might fit as well um, in relation to uh, to what you're discussing? Uh, what can we talk about peace agreements and reconciliation when the victims do not feel represented in the negotiation process? So I think that chimes a bit with what Fabio was saying too. Yes, yeah, so um, the problem to of representation. So, John. Yes, I mean, the first thing I would say about the question of victims is 
victims aren't our group of people with our perspective. Some victims are very keen to move on and leave the violence behind. Some never get over it. And I mean never get over it. And their children never get over it. Um, So they're not our group of people. Um, Some feel very offended by procedures being put into place to address it. Some want to continue punishing uh, and so on and so on. So uh, we have to be careful. One thing that was very impressive about the Colombian uh, situation was that they started by trying to address the issue of victims. Now, it may not have been as successfully done, yeah. uh, but at least they started with it. And in, in, our, in our situation, it was a tail end Charlie, you know, it only came in at the very end of everything else. And it really wasn't very well dealt with even at that stage. Uh, but I just want to say that about victims, because I think that is absolutely right and important. The second thing I want to say is that I think there is a major mistake in the way that uh, violence is understood and dealt with. I don't actually think that violence comes because people have extreme ideas or extreme views. I think it become, comes because they have extreme feelings about things. People can have all sorts of ideas, sensible or crazy, and they don't necessarily act on them. But when people feel extremely powerfully about them, then they very often act on them even when they're not very clear what it is they think. And, and you can end up with a lot of trouble. So the question is, how do people feel and can we deal with that? Now, if people feel that everything is unjust, it's unfair, it's humiliating, it's disrespectful and so on, and they get very, very angry about that, they may try to attack externally what they think is causing that. And that can be quite complicated how it's done, but, but broadly speaking, you attack out. If they come to the point of feeling It's hopeless. I can't possibly do that. The feelings don't go away. They get turned internally. And these communities damage themselves. You get huge levels of alcoholism, drug abuse, sexual violence, domestic violence, and so on and so on. It's not that the feelings have gone away, but they end up coming out in a different kind of fashion. The only way you can get away from that is to get to some kind of process through people, which people have a sense of hope that the, the reasons for their very strong feelings can actually be dealt with and ameliorated. And that's what the whole business of peace processes and so on is about, is to try to give people a sense that their feelings can be addressed in some kind of constructive way as a community. And that's what we try to do more or less successfully. And if we can deal with it in some way, it can ameliorate things, not just for this generation, but for the next generation. And that's really very important because what we're beginning to discover is that while we thought that you had your genetic structure and then there was the environment and you had a mix of these two things, what we've now begun to discover is that the environment can actually change the expression of your genes, the sort of epigenetic phenomena. And, and when you understand that, what you understand is when, for example, you bring a conflict to an end, not only do people carry the memories, but in their very physical selves, they carry the consequences, even if they themselves have not lost an arm or a leg or, or, or whatever. So there's an awful lot more to all of this. But the powerful feelings, it seems to me, should not be underestimated. Thank you. Uh, any, any other? Let me bring another question here. Uh, sh- how should the private sector be involved in reconciliation, in, in societal reconciliation? Is there a role, for instance, for um, 
private health care, especially in Latin America, to be involved in, in the victims' rehabilitation processes. Federico? Yes, I can jump yeah. on this one. Well, definitely the private sector plays a, a key role, in particular in Latin America, I would say. I, I've been working in Latin America for years now, uh, in, the, in, in, in all of South America, Central America, and the Caribbean uh, countries. And, uh, and the role of private sector is, is enormous because we have a lack of good coverage in health systems, in education systems, in general, I'm talking in general, of course, in, 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 in rule of law and legal systems as well. So, so you add up all that, just to mention a few, and, and definitely the private sector has a role, a very important role to help the community uh, to bond together and try help to direct some efforts on these reconciliation efforts. Definitely the, the and, and then link it to, to the culture uh, thing that and, 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 and to the preconditions for an agreement. If, if, if population or communities sees that everybody is engaged in, or most of the people is engaged, I mean, most of the players, I would say, engaged on, on trying to find a solution, like say, the local authority for criminal for, for criminal, criminal criminal justice, or the head of the uh, education system, or the uh, even the the, the 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 priest or the or the, the head of the parish in the in the region. So the head the head of the police. Again, these these efforts of uh, building together the social or, or re reunited the social fabric that has been broken. Uh, again, it's not magic. We have to work together with the community and first ask the community what are the main issues. And, and, and with that, uh, we will be able to, to bring some tools and, and, and provide some, uh, as, as private sector, some tools for these uh, communities to, to become better. Mm -hmm. And they are very thankful and they, they, they recognize that, that this could work somehow. Well, I've been working with the, with the group of Jesuits on this with uh, these uh, programs of, of, of rebuilding the social fabric and that has been very powerful and very helpful in many, in many small communities and really has worked well. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Frederico. I have two very uh, interesting contrasting uh, questions here from, from our audience. Actually, someone greeting us from uh, Kathmandu in Nepal and someone mm -hmm. in Rwanda as well. So, uh, telling us about the importance that it was for, for people in Nepal to go through the process of revisiting history and revisiting the pain and revisiting the tragedy. Whereas in Rwanda, one of our uh, members of the audience is saying, well, there was a lot of silence, a very, very difficult process of actually confronting that process, uh, not only because the silence was constructed, but also some level of imposition of that silence. So perhaps that's a good final question. If anyone would like to, to comment briefly on, on this issue of you know, silencing the pain or alternatively revisiting the pain and having the courage and the structures as well to mm -hmm. face the, the terrible deeds, the terrible sorrowful pasts and 
any anyone to I suppose the, the, the brief comment I would make about it is this, Sandra. We all know that if somebody cuts your arm off or cuts your leg off, you can't sew it back on again in any meaningful way. You can have a prosthesis. but And yet we have somehow the notion that if, if you've had a psychological injury, it should be able to be repaired. But my own experience is that while some can, some can't. And... And that's a very difficult thing, but it's a very difficult thing for us to accept. But I think the truth is that sometimes the damage is so great that it is not able to be repaired. And the best that we can do is try to provide some kind of support mm -hmm. to people who are still suffering and continue to mm -hmm. suffer and will continue to suffer from the terrible things that have happened to them and that they have experienced. Yeah. Yes. Well, perhaps that's a yes. very good uh, uh, point to, to, to conclude our event today, perhaps we need to reconcile ourselves with the fact that when we perpetrate terrible deeds against each other, there are sorrows, there is pain that will not easily go away. And uh, being able to face that pain as, as it stays with us uh, and build support structures to handle it is part of what we will need to do. Um, May I thank you very much for your interventions today. It was, uh, I think, the audience will agree with me. That was inspiring. It was incredibly um, uh, informative. And uh, thank you very much for all of you who joined us today to this event. Stay tuned. The LSE has a fantastic series of public events. Come back and stay with us as we try to study the cause of things and address urgent social issues. Thank you very much, everyone.